As we come to our text this morning, it is good for us to pray to God and ask for his help. Almighty Father, we come to you and we profess our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his resurrection, but we pray, O God, would you help our unbelief? Would you transform us and renew our minds in the preaching of your word? I pray that you would use me, humble, lowly servant, Father, to proclaim the goodness and the glory that you are the living King, that you are reigning high above that you live to intercede for us, and that you will come again to bring your peace and your kingdom forevermore. And I pray that you would do this for your glory and honor and for our good. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to our text in 1 Corinthians 15. You can find it in your ESV Bibles or printed for you in your bulletin. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context, as is always our practice. First, I just want to say that I'm preaching this sermon this morning. 1 Corinthians 15 is the great hallmark chapter in Scripture on the resurrection. And I'm preaching it first because we seem to have faced so much death in the life of our congregation. It is good for us to be reminded of the hope of the gospel, the hope of eternal life. But second, I think even more than Our context, the context of Paul and his writing in Scripture, is good for us to hear again. This is the great chapter on the resurrection. It happens to contain my life verse, the last verse in the chapter. And this is Paul's great teaching on the resurrection and on eternal life, on the afterlife. And so I want us to consider this morning, if anyone comes to you and asks, what what do you believe about eternal life. What do you believe about the resurrection? What do you believe about the afterlife? I want you to say to them, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I'll ask you, if anyone comes and says, what about this resurrection? What will you say? It's not, it's not rhetorical. 1 Corinthians 15. I don't want you to forget it. Say it again. What will you say? No, we're not like Donald Trump, Wayne. No one Corinthians. We're... 1 Corinthians 15. But the question remains a little bit. Why this chapter in this particular place in Scripture? It's at the end of a long letter. It doesn't appear to be all that systematic or doctrinal in teaching. You know, he's considering things like what does it mean to have orderly worship? What do we do about food sacrifice to idols? What do we do about these spiritual gifts running through the church? It's a very practical letter. But then he pauses and Paul begins to teach very systematically the doctrine of the resurrection. And I would argue for us this morning that the purpose, the context, if you will, of this particular passage comes immediately before ours in verse 1 and 2 of the chapter. He writes, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, If you hold fast the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. You see, the gospel is what's at stake. The resurrection Paul is equating to the very gospel, to the heart of what we believe as Christians, the the content and pointing to the fullness of the good news in Christ. This historical reality of Christ's resurrection is the substance of our faith. 
Notice even how he's passing on this eyewitness testimony. He says, I'm delivering it to you as of first importance as I also received it. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Paul's teaching us then that we will not obey the gospel without a proper understanding of the resurrection. We will not do church the right way unless we understand that God raised Jesus from the dead and we believe in our hearts that he raises us as well. Now after that very long intro, let us go to the text. I'll read it for us beginning in verse 12 of chapter 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. On March the 9th, 1974, on the island of Lubang in the Philippines, a gentleman by the name of Hiro Onoda, and that's Japanese, I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation, he surrendered 
after nearly 30 years of holding out on this small island. He's one of the famous holdouts of World War II. And you heard me right. I said World War II. You see, Hiro Onoda believed that the Empire of Japan was still at war with the Allied forces. Even after 30 years, he was ordered as a young man in the military to go to this island and to carry out guerrilla warfare against the Allies as they were advancing in the Pacific to try to stifle their efforts. And he was commanded specifically, do not surrender under any circumstance unless you are relieved by your superior officer. Now, he took that quite literally. They, they had rumors of him going about the islands after the first few years of the war. And they began, after a decade or so, dropping leaflets in. Hero, the war is over. They were giving newspaper clippings. They even went to the point of dropping pictures of his family who had moved on. And he said, no, that's all allied propaganda. It's all a lie. I will continue on fighting. He surrendered after only 30 years, or after 30 years only, fighting a pointless war. A war that had been over for so long. A life lived almost in vain. I wonder if we simply take pity on this man today, or if we can even see ourselves in his shoes somewhat. Well, I want us to look to our text to see what I mean. Go back to verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul's laying the central argument of our passage down before us. He's arguing for the resurrection of the dead, meaning the resurrection of all people at the end of the age when Christ returns. You see, he's saying, some of you Corinthians believe and are professing that Jesus is raised from the dead, but you don't believe that everyone will be raised from the dead when Christ returns. He's saying that that argument doesn't hold water. It's not plausible because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ couldn't have been raised. So your preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You see, Mr. Onoda knew this. All that is just propaganda. That's all a lie. I don't believe that. I'm going to continue fighting because the war is on. We know that that wasn't the truth. That wasn't reality. The reality is the war was over. The reality is, Paul says, Christ is raised. He continues. He says, not only is your faith in vain or your your preaching in vain, he says, we're even misrepresenting God. Because we have claimed, we have publicly professed that would have been one of the rights of entering into fellowship with the early church. They would have professed belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But he says, if... We don't believe that others are raised. If we don't believe truly that Christ has been raised, then our faith is in vain. Why why does he say this? Well, listen to verses 15 through 17 again. I'll skip down halfway through 15. He says, Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ 
has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Notice that phrase, you're still in your sins. Why is Paul arguing this way? Well, it's what Scripture teaches us. Romans chapter 4, he writes there, speaking of the faith that was credited to Abraham, it will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered us, Him up for our trespasses and raised Him for our justification. He's immediately connecting the work of Christ and the resurrection to our justification. He's saying you're still in your sins if Christ was not raised for your justification. You know, there are some folks, even in the mainline part of the Protestant religion, who believe that Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. They don't believe in the resurrection. Paul's saying, that's nonsense. Let's, let's back up from Scripture for a moment and just think about it logically. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then he's just a dead man. He can't do anything for your faith. He can't take away your sin. He can't cleanse you because he couldn't even cleanse himself. He's still dead. He has no power to justify you if he's not been raised. That's just simple logic. Why would people profess to believe in Christ to proclaim that they're a Christian if they don't believe that he's been raised from the dead? They're putting their faith in a dead man. He isn't, therefore, vindicated by God the Father. He doesn't have the seal of approval that all authority under heaven and on earth has been given to Him to execute judgment faithfully, to bring about God's grace and mercy to His people. Christ, therefore, would be impotent. He'd be just a man, not the Son of God. You see why this is pointless then? If the dead are not raised, Christ certainly couldn't have been raised. And Paul's words next really will hurt us if we read it carefully. He says in verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died, people who you and I know, those who have died in Christ, have perished. You will never see them again. If Christ is not raised, we have no hope of anything after this life. And if we're Christians promoting not the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we're a people most to be pitied. If we hope only in this life, only for these few short years that we have, we're pitiful people. Our loved ones have dead and gone. Our faith is in vain. My beloved brothers and sisters, I want you to look me in the eye. Let someone come into the midst of our body and start preaching that nonsense and see what I do to them. I will bludgeon them down. For that does not give you hope. That does not give you peace and calm in the midst of death that we see. That only amplifies your heartache and your pain. And I, for one, as a shepherd, will not stand for it. We, in this church, hope in the resurrection of Christ. And we hope in the resurrection of the dead in general, that when we see the Lord in glory, we will receive new bodies in Christ. 
That's why I get so angry with our culture and this yellow movement. You only live once. You know, if you're a little bit older and you may not know that phrase, it's, you know, make, make today count. Life is short. You've only got a little while on this earth. Make it count. Now, that's very convicting for me as well. I get so frustrated often because I see the sin of the man in the mirror, not just our culture out there. I want you to think, for instance, let's apply this to our lives for a moment. As we examine our sinfulness, as we examine our brokenness, let's consider for a second. How often do we long to do things on the Lord's Day other than gather for worship? Or let's take it down to the heart level. How often do we come to worship, sometimes maybe begrudgingly, or at a sense of duty only, or coming just because, well, that's the right thing to do. You see, what we're doing is we're reckoning in our heart. Oh, I only have a few short moments in this life. Why do I want to spend it on worship when I've, when I've got all eternity to worship God? You see, I've got all eternity that I'm going to spend in a worship service. And you see, Paul's point, beloved, is that's the very opposite of reality. That's a war that has ended. You see, the truth of the matter is we've got all of eternity to spend on a new earth doing the great pleasures that are at God's right hand forevermore. But in this life, we only have a few precious moments to convene and worship with our brothers and sisters to proclaim the truth of the gospel in the midst of a culture that doesn't believe it. You see, it's the opposite of what we think. We don't need to try to do all of these other things on Sunday because we have all this time to worship in eternity. We have all that time in eternity to do all of the blessed things that will be in that age, but we only have a few short, precious moments to gather for worship with the body in this age, to proclaim the truth of the gospel to people who are lost and who are dying. You see, that's the truth. That's what Paul is teaching. He moves on from here and he seeks to apply not just the the problems of belief or unbelief in the resurrection, but now he begins to propose the solution for, for right belief and right living under the doctrine of the resurrection. He continues, verses 20 and following, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That means he's, he's the first one of many who will be brought back from the dead. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now this teaches us a couple of things. Let's pause for just a moment. First, it teaches us that everyone will be raised to newness of life. The Council of Scripture tells that As well, John chapter 5. Do not marvel at this. The hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear my voice and come forth. 
Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or of death. Do you believe that? See, that's Paul's very point here. Let's not miss the big picture. Some in the church are professing belief in the resurrection of Christ, but not the resurrection of the dead in general. Do you believe that everyone in all of history will receive a new body and come back from the dead? That's part of the point of this text. Now, Paul is quick to clarify. He's not a universalist. He's not saying that everyone comes back with a new body and has blessed communion with God forever. He says, notice, those who belong to Christ come first with Him. Believers who have died have the hope of glory, the hope of a new body, of coming back from the dead. But then notice what he says. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, meaning the kingdom of this age, the fallenness, the brokenness of this world. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And he puts all his enemies under his feet. We can think of the language of every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess doesn't mean that every person will be saved. Only those who belong to Christ. Scripture says elsewhere, Revelations 21, goes to a long litany of sins. It really indicates those who are not a part of God's flock. Those who are not sheep belonging to Christ, they'll be cast into the second death. The picture here is that at the end of the age, when Christ reigns supreme and every enemy is put under His feet, Everyone has a new body, but he divides those who belong to him, the sheep at his right hand who are blessed forevermore from the goats, those at his left hand who will be cast into the second death, the lake of fire. I want you to look me in the eye again. That makes me squirm. I don't like that. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Number one, it takes the control out of my hand. I don't judge you all. I don't have the keys to the kingdom in that way. The finality of that judgment. But Christ does. And I'm here to proclaim this morning, there is coming a day when that judgment will take place. And all who are in their tombs will come forth. Every human being who has ever lived will get a new body. And the beautiful picture of the gospel is that those who belong to Christ will never be lost. They will have blessed communion in His kingdom forever as He reigns eternal so that God may be all in all. But the hard news of the gospel is that those who do not belong to Christ will have a new body, but they will be given over to death forevermore, having bodies to die, yet not being able to die. What does that do for us besides just make us uncomfortable? Well, let us get to the last part of our passage. Let us get, brothers and sisters, to the application Paul goes on in chapter and verse 29 and following to the end. Otherwise, 
What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Or he gives another reason. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see, Paul is giving the rationale of our culture. He's saying if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no hope of new life beyond the grave with a real body and a new earth, then by God, let us eat and drink and do whatever we want. He's saying, why would I contend with people in Ephesus? Why would I put my life in danger? Why would I risk my flesh and blood, something so precious, unless I believe that I get a new body? Unless I believe that there's something more to this life than what we see here and now? Why don't we just do whatever we want? Why don't we just go out and eat and drink and be merry? It's the cry of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless. All is vanity. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But beloved, he calls us all. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. What's the application for us today? I wonder if you know how that man 40 years ago was released from his duty. I wonder if you know how he was saved from that vain life of fighting a war that was long gone. Do you believe it or not? His commanding officer came back after 30 years to relieve him from duty in person. And finally, Mr. Onadel was able to give up his sword, to lay down his arms, because someone came and told him the truth. Not a leaflet, not a pamphlet, but someone with a personal relationship with him came and said, the fighting and the warfare is over. There is good news at the end of your story. Brother, your life it's not in vain. You can go on to build a school for the people that you have persecuted on this island. You can go on back to Japan to start a foundation for troubled youth. Your life is not meaningless. See, that is what Paul is teaching us today. There are some out there who have no knowledge of God. Look at me, brothers and sisters. There are some who believe that this life is all there is. And they're trying desperately with every breath that they take. And who would blame them? They're trying desperately to fit every part of their existence and their identity into these few short years. And they are pitiful people. Because you and I know that they are going to die whether they want to face it or not, we all are going to die. But we all will be raised from the dead. And you and your heart need to reckon whether or not you believe that before God Almighty. And if you do, then go to these people with their brokenness. 
befriend them in their pain and their suffering. As we all walk through this life facing death that is so poignant and so salient that we can feel it in our gut, that it brings tears to our eyes, that we mourn and we grieve over this fallen world, that we are broken because of our brokenness. But we have hope. We have hope not because we sweep that bad news under the rug, living as if we're never going to die, not because we don't want to face the reality of our death, but because we know that death itself will be defeated. When the end comes, Jesus our Lord, who is reigning and living in a new body now, will come again and he will deliver this kingdom to God the Father. And everything will be put under his feet, even death itself. Why are you living as if death is so painful? Yes, the separation from loved ones is painful. But death is not painful. Listen to Paul as he quotes Isaiah Death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? You see, Paul knew in his heart it no longer had a hold on him because he believed in the resurrection, not just of Jesus Christ, but of his own bones. He knew that he had a new body awaiting him when Jesus would return in glory. And on that day, we shall see him face to face. I don't want you to let those words slide past you. Brothers and sisters, listen to those words. We will see God Almighty face to face. Not spirit to spirit. Face to face. And like Moses, we will shine in His radiance. We are the glory that is waiting to be revealed. The redemption of our bodies. When all of creation will know that the end has come, that evil is no longer, that sin is no more, that death and all of those former things have passed away because we will be shining in glory. That is the gospel which you received, which we stand in, by which we are being saved. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let us pray.